ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When you think of emergency departments, I wonder what comes to mind. Perhaps it's a long, late night hours in the waiting room after being triaged as there are more critical cases ahead of you and you're sitting in what can often be a rather starkly lit waiting room. Plastic chairs, fluorescent lights, the full box and dice. You might have even been seriously injured or ill. Maybe you were attended to quickly and well. Or maybe your image of emergency medicine comes from shows like the long-running ER, where good-looking doctors like George Clooney are in attendance. There you go, Claire. <laughs> Dr. Claire Skinner is with us, president of the Australian past president of the Australian College of Emergency Medicine, and still heavily involved with the college. And she also works, of course, in EDs. Claire, good evening. Welcome to Nightlife. Thank you so much for having me. And of course, it's just like that. Is it? I've actually never watched ER. Oh, yes, you have. No, I haven't, because I'd be a bit intimidated about all those good-looking people really? doing amazing things, Come I on, think. lawyers watch legal shows. Oh, I watch medical shows, but mostly just to recoil in horror at the stuff that's going wrong. Really? What's your, what's your favourite one? Scrubs. I love Scrubs, and yeah. I have to admit the um, British comedy series Green Wing is probably oh, more yeah. frighteningly true to life than people recognise. <laughs> I love this. I love this. Where, what drew you to it anyway? Why, when you graduated in medicine, why did you want to become an ED doctor? Look, I actually started out wanting to work in public health um, when mm. I did medicine. And public health is not thought of as very clinical. And mm. it's probably still a great surprise to me more than 20 years on that I've ended up in emergency medicine, which I think is arguably the most hands-on specialty there is. You see, I'm, I mean, I you know, know nothing about it, this is, which is why you're here for, for this hour, but I, I would have thought, you know, if you're looking for stressful jobs, I've often thought the worst job in the world must be the complaints officer at a parcel courier business, you know, because every single time the phone rings or you get a message, you know, it's some angry person. Oh, no, that would be but terrible. It's, but, it's this, but in ED, it's the same, isn't it? No, it's not. Every, every time, there's a crisis every, every all the time. So coming back to your original question, why mm. why was I and why were my colleagues drawn mm. to emergency medicine? Mm. I, I think it's because we like people mm. and we like problem solving and we like the immediacy and the variety of it. So the way I've always thought of emergency medicine, it's it's sort of the medical equivalent of the show, Thank God You're Here. So you're sort of there with a team of people, you get on with them mm. well, you trust them and you're highly skilled and... You just deal with whatever comes in. So I think, you know, there's some people in the world who like to go to work and have predictability and be able to plan out their day and others of us who would be very bored by that prospect. And the great thing about a career in emergency medicine is you never need to think, you know, when is my shift over and what time is it? Because Mm. the day just rockets through. It's interesting. You get to work with your hands and do procedures. You get to talk to people. I meet the full cross-section of humanity, which is such a privilege and I, I also just really like the people who do it. So mm. when I hit the emergency well, department... what sort of people are they? Because, because when, I hit, when, you, when I say the word emergency department, everything's an emergency. Everything is. Well, you know, we, we do actually think that an emergency is defined by the patient. Mm. Um, mm. 
you know, which you have to be patient-centred in emergency departments. An ingrown toenail is but, not an emergency, you mean? Yeah, the, the types of people that do it are sort of, you know, I think we, we tend to run a little bit high. We like to be busy and do things. We're activists, so mm. we tend to, you know, get very engaged in things and get very involved in things and... We don't. We, we we think on our feet. We like making quick decisions, and I think we all like doing a little bit of everything. So, you know, I think of friends who are surgeons who will do the same procedure time in time out, and they become experts in the detail mm, of that, which must be very satisfying if that's the way you're wired. But I really like in my corner of the profession that I get to do a little bit of everything, and every day is just a little bit different, and there are new people to meet and new things to learn and new new things about humanity to discover. You see, a lot of people would say, yeah, that's the definition of stress, though, because the thing about doing the same thing every day is you get good at it and therefore your world is quite controllable. Well, you're I think... Sa- you're saying you like, the un- you like the unexpected. I do like the unexpected, but, I, you know, to be honest, emergency medicine is more predictable than you think. think like, if you, after you've done it for a while, the same types of people come in, the same types of problems present to you. There is a... There is a there is a pattern and predictability to it that probably isn't obvious if you're just watching one shift or basing it on the time you might spend as a patient or a carer mm. inside the emergency department. Mm. A lot of people may not realise that EDs are very familiar to those in the community who are challenged in various ways, the mentally ill, the homeless, in other words. In other words, you see sometimes, as you've mentioned, the same people. Yeah, that's, that's something that surprises... Mm. It surprised me when I started mm. out. Like, I think... Something that appeals about emergency medicine, it's, it's some people consider it a lifestyle specialty. You know, you're not responsible for people when you're not there. Mm. And I don't think superficially that you would realise the extent of connection to community that we have. So if you think about how just how mm. hard it is to access healthcare, even as a well-connected person with means in our community, it can be very difficult. Think about the people who are more marginalised, so people who are homeless or are financially struggling, mm. new arrivals to the country, refugees. I'm really proud that emergency medicine and emergency departments provide the safety net to the most marginalised people in our communities, and that's something I think that drives a lot of people who choose emergency medicine is we're naturally attracted to issues of social justice. And if you are interested in those, yeah. emergency medicine is where you're going to see them close up and and hopefully be able to help not only on an individual level but at a system level as well. Yeah, I mean, Australians have lots to be proud of in their medical system. I, I know there are issues, but, gee, you go to some other countries to realise how bad things can get. And that is true about ED, isn't it, that, you know, anyone can rock up. It is. And, and you get treated. Yeah, and that's I'm really proud of that. Isn't that mm. a good thing? Aren't we lucky that we have that? Mm. I am, you know, aware that we're not perfect. Mm. And, you know, the clinicians who work in emergency departments feel that keenly. Like we would love everything to work more smoothly, you know, to be easier. Mm. We, we struggle with desperate levels of overcrowding across the country. And I know that impacts on patients and their families and creates high amounts of stress. But overall, if you look at the health systems across the world, the fact that we provide, you know, this all-rounder care, free yeah. at point of access any time of the day is actually an amazing thing that we've created. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm talking now with Dr. Claire Skinner, uh, who's an emergency department specialist. If you've uh, got questions or experiences yourself, you might like to give us a call. Robin from Footscray is joining us. Hi, Robin. Oh, hi, Phil. Hi, Dr. Skinner. I had a fall about three months ago at one of our local shopping centres and ended up in an ambulance and they thought I had a broken hip because I'm old Mm. and 
Um, I was taken to the Western Hospital, which is in Footscray. And I've got to tell you, I couldn't have been treated better if I'd been the Queen. They were wonderful. They did everything that they needed to do. They reassured me. They let my son come in with me. And it was, you know, there was a bit of COVID around, so there were masks and everything on. But the doctors and the nurses and every they were just fantastic. Mm. They were really fantastic. And talking to friends... I mean, you get the odd thing where people say, oh, God, the emergency department. But mostly it's a very positive response. Good on you. Robin, thank you so much. I have amazing colleagues who work there and they'll love hearing that feedback. <laughs> Anton's in Perth. G'day, Anton. G'day. It's uh, Anton from Perth. Yeah. Hi, Anton. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, um, I had a great experience. I was in a, in a regional town in Bunbury and yeah. um, I'd gone to the opt- optometrist that day because my vision had started uh, blurring, mm-hmm. and they, they sent me through to ED, and uh, I was diagnosed with a pituitary tumour um, that evening. Yeah. And the, the emergency doctor that, that uh, spoke to me that evening was so kind and passionate and had all the time in the world for me. And actually, after the weekend, because a couple of the major hospitals in Perth needed to follow up with me over that weekend, and she actually rang me on the Monday afternoon to check that all of the um, doctors and all of the departments that were meant to uh, follow up with me had actually followed up. And I, I always had this in, in I always always had this picture that people in ED just you know uh, churn through people, but this kind of showed such level of of dedication. Mm. I'm even just tearing up even just talking about it now. <laughs> it's yeah. amazing, and mm. all was good, but it was just such a great experience. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Anton. Good on you. Are you okay now? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good. So um, everyone followed up and um, on medication now, all under control. So very positive experience all around. Yeah, good on you. Thanks, Anton. Uh, Gee, we've got a lot of texts and calls about this already. (laughs) Thank you. All positive so far. I know they are. Yeah, Phil, I can't praise hospitals enough. Um, Here's here's an insight. The thing about emergency medicine doctors, though, they can hyper-focus. They become internally very calm. They're impervious to noise and panic and they can take charge and control. They're amazing human beings. It's what happens after the adrenaline wears off that worries me, as their partners and families might know. Is that a thing? Yeah, that's a thing. So yeah. I that's, that surprised me. So mm. um, I can go to work and be amidst chaos, and someone comes in who's critically injured, and I absolutely have to switch into that mode, which is I need to keep myself together be systematic and also make sure the team feels that I'm solid. So mm. if you're leading that team in a resuscitation bay, they can't know that you're wobbly. You've got to be able to step through it, but obviously in a way that includes opinions from all of them and mm. their expertise and also um, you want the input of the patient and their family if they're able to provide that. Mm. But I think that's a hard thing to do. And I think there is a degree of trauma that you experience when you work in emergency departments that is unfortunately absorbed later, uh, often physically. And um, also, I do know that the download onto your partner and your family later can be a thing, although many of us choose to download to colleagues instead. Mm. I mean, they're tense places, aren't they? Because things are happening. Yeah, they are. Look, it's not, I think, it's not a gentle diagnostic environment. Is it's it? not. And look, I think you just there's a degree of pragmatism in emergency medicine, which I think is something the community, you know, the community mm. understand when they come in, but mightn't understand from the outside. Which is, you're not trying to be perfect. Something mm. I like about my practice is I speak in lay terms. You know, I'm, mm. I meet people where they're at. I mm. like that I can sit on the bed. I like that I share the same physical space as mm. as the people who seek care. So there's it's it's quite democratic the emergency department, mm-hmm. and that can re- whilst that can be stressful and it, you know create problems with boundaries, it also reduces some of the stress because you do do feel like 
that is the thing that guides you through. So you, you know, you bring yourself back to what would I want, or what would I want, you know, what mm-hmm. would I want if I were the patient, or what would I want for my mum or my sister or my kids, and that's what guides you. And mm. I, I really liked Anton's point about follow through. So I feel that I get to meet people often on one of the worst days of their life, and if I can be a centered, calm human being yeah. that treats them well, listens to them, answers their questions, and helps guide them to the next stage of their care. That actually can teach them that the health system is a safe place. Mm. Look, I know it's not always a safe place, just to acknowledge that. But say you're you know, a, a teenager who's vulnerable, experiencing psychological distress, it's a big deal to come and trust the health system or a health professional. So I hope that if I can provide that humanistic welcome, mm. that person might learn then that when they have bigger issues in the future or they need us more, that they can come and seek help and find the ED a place where we don't judge them and we can hopefully help guide the rest of their healthcare journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a... Um it's often been described to me as as a more collegiate place than, say, the operating theatre, for example. And I, I'm not critical of that. I mean, in an operating theatre, particularly in complex surgery, you need someone who's in charge and you need people to do what they're told, presumably, otherwise things could go bad. But in the ED, there's not so much hierarchy. That yeah, there's Doctors not- and nurses are really trying to... Ad- I mean, there's a more, there is a lot bigger feeling of working together. Is that right? There is. And look, just to acknowledge that um, this is not a competition. Other places have different cultures and yeah, they yeah. need those cultures to I'm do the work they do. not setting one against the other here, but yeah. go on. Yeah. Um, but I think something that really attracted me to the emergency department when I first entered it as a, as a doctor in training was that flat hierarchy. So it was first names. Hmm. That was rare in the hospitals um, when I started out. Really? First names. Uh, people are either in scrubs or reasonably casual clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, people use lay terms. So, you know, we refer to nosebleeds, not epistaxis, for example. Mm-hmm. So there's this, you're really centred around humanity, I think, in the ED. You see humanity up close. And I think... That means that it is a flat hierarchy. The other thing is you have to assemble a team to do something which is actually quite extraordinary on the turn of a dime, you know. So you Mm. have to be able to – you have to trust the people around you. You have to know them quite well and you have to, you know, appraise yourself of their skills and be able to pull them together to do something very difficult with very little notice. So I think that attracts a certain type of person and you have – there is hierarchy and you need to know how to um, exert – you know, assert yourself when you – need to in a critical situation. Mm. But I actually think we survive some of the trauma of our work by knowing each other very well, trusting each other and working together very closely. And also, I think, often socialising together and supporting each other as well with the work we do. Mm. You must see a lot of horrible things, though. Yeah, I think so. And I often get asked, what's the worst thing you've seen or what's the most... I don't want to go in and do yeah. it too much tonight. Well, I can't, I, I can't tell people. That's the interesting no. thing is if I think of... When a, when a lay person asks me what's the worst thing you've ever seen, I sort of start at the genuine worst and then move myself back to the next worst and then think mm. through to maybe about the 10th, the 15th worst, which is maybe where I could discuss it with someone who hasn't been mm. in that environment. Mm. Mm. And that's a strange thing. Um, it's, I think, you know, it's such a privilege. I, I think people worry about death and dying and that's it. That's an absolute privilege to be there with someone at that see, moment. You would see a lot of people die. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people die. Yeah, but I'm not scared of it. I actually because yeah, it's a process to you. No, it's not a process. It's actually. I mean, it is a process. I mean, it's it's something we yeah, all go it's, through. It's something we all go through, and yeah. hopefully, in calm, as calm and peaceful a way mm. as possible, and not right mm. now. Mm. But it's there's a there's a strange quietness to someone passing away which is a privilege to be there with. And also, if you're that person with the knowledge and you can Mm. find space to be with the person and their family and to explain things and to settle them, you can really create a really positive environment for that. 
I don't think emergency departments are great places to die. I think there are better alternatives, particularly if you've had a long course into death. But when it does happen, I've personally always found it an exceptional privilege to be present at that time, and it's not something I've feared. I feared it when you know I I fear it when I'm involved in a resuscitation situation. I'm desperately doing everything I can and drawing on every piece of knowledge I have to save someone's life. Mm. I don't want someone to die then. But when death is inevitable, uh, there's a there's a there's a nice calmness to it. It's interesting to hear you say that because every single person I've interviewed over a long period of interviewing people um, about this always says pretty much the same thing, that at the moment, at the moment, it's strangely calming in a yeah, way uh, because it's human and, you know, there's, I don't know, there's some strange connection between all of us that but I feel, we know what's going on. Yeah, there is. I think it's just wired into us and I, I think you know, modern society is not very good at death and dying no. or illness or injury. We're no, very no. scared of it. We're very ableist, I have to admit. We're scared of people who are different and have different strengths to us. But I think there's actually a nice thing in the emergency department is I've got to meet everybody and I've heard mm. their stories and I've been present during some of these times. And even in immense times of immense challenge and struggle, there's this positive human spirit that draws us all together. And that's something that brings me back to shifts, even when I'm tired and even when I'm a bit over it. So mm. there's this immense positive thing that you get out of working in emergency departments. It's a total privilege. Tim from Albany says, how frequent is misdiagnosis in the ED? Oh, look, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it happens. It happens. It, uh, there's a lot of research that's happened into diagnosis in the emergency department. Mm. I'm really interested in this because obviously we all want to do better. And the specialties put a lot of effort into trying to teach us all about cognitive science and how to make decisions effectively over the last 10, 15 years. Unfortunately, misdiagnosis is quite common. What we try to do in emergency departments is not get to a fixed diagnosis unless we really have to. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but mm. so... If you come in with something and you need a diag- you need an exact diagnosis now because that'll make a difference and will guide this acute phase of your treatment, we need to get it absolutely right. Mm. So if someone comes in and they're having a stroke, we need you know we need that imaging, we need the neurologist to attend, we need to make sure we get that absolutely right because if we get that acute treatment wrong, there's there's terrible consequences down the track. Mm. But on the other hand, if you came in with something a little more indolent, so if you came in with some abdominal pain you'd had for a while. Um, we will try to reassure you about the things that might be, you know, life-threatening or that might need an acute surgery or something like that. But we'll try not to jump to a premature exact diagnosis because we know that can cause diagnostic fixation. We know we don't have the full information in the ED. We're really only there at the pointy end. Mm. We don't have the sort of longitudinal relationship with a patient and their family that, say, a general practitioner might have or a specialist. So we're really careful about diagnosis. I know that some people find that frustrating. So I remember I'm hearing from a friend, you know, I went to the ED and I had a problem with my eye and they told me I just needed to go to the ophthalmologist the next day and then the ophthalmologist told me I had this particular diagnosis so the ED missed it. Hmm. But in fact, that's really deliberate that we, people, people want that really specific diagnosis, but our role in the emergency department is to find the specific diagnoses that will make a difference right now. When someone needs that acute treatment, that will make a difference right now. We are, in fact, deliberately quite broad when it comes to the other diagnosis because we, our role is to hand you over to someone who can then pursue that diagnosis and get it right. And if we, if we jump into prematurely and give you the wrong diagnosis, that can cause problems. Sure. Dr. Claire Skinner is with us, um, an ED specialist. Sharon from the Hunter Valley. Hi, Sharon. Hello. How are you? I'm good, yes. Um, I, 
I was listening to your program and love it. Hmm. Thank Some you. years ago, I was um, got very sick up near Taree, mm-hmm. and on the ambulance while I was getting to the hospital, I had some seizures. So when I got to the hospital, I wasn't in a great state. They suspected a heart attack, and the ER couldn't have been more thorough. From the moment I arrived at ER, they were doing all manner of tests. There wasn't a bed available immediately or anything, but they just kept... No one left me alone. They made sure that all the tests that they had to do were completely done and very thoroughly. Everyone was absolutely polite and courteous. No one made me feel alarmed about my condition in any way. In fact, they helped really calm me. Mm -hmm. My own brain sort of jumping to conclusions. And they said, no, you know, don't, don't jump to any conclusions. This could have a whole range of different reasons why you're having, feeling this way. And, uh, I ended up in the Tari Hospital for about three or four days. But the emergency group couldn't have been better. Yeah. Thank I would recommend... <laughs> thank you, thank you, Sharon. Uh, uh, good on you, Sharon. Thank you. Um, one three hundred eight hundred triple two. Um Soren's in Perth. G'day, Soren. Yes, uh, speaking. Are you in Perth or are you in Albany? Um, I'm on my way back to Albany. Okay. Uh, we were there uh, last year, my wife and I, and yeah. um, and I um, started feeling funny chest pain, sort of left side for a couple of days. And <laughs> you get a bit scared. You do. It wasn't, it wasn't severe. I, I didn't really want to tell my wife, but I thought I better get go to to the to the hospital. And <clears throat> so I drove there and wandered in, and I took a book with me because <laughs> I thought it might be waste time. My God, I was whisked in there. Was, it, was the book called How to Survive a Heart Attack or something like that? Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm no, only joking because you're obviously alive and well, but anyway, go on. Yeah. No, something not so bad as that. No, anyway, uh, oxygen test and everything, you know, checked by, wired up or uh, whatever, and, and there I was lying down there reading a book and wheeled around with various tests and looked after by a really nice young lady doctor. Of course, that helped. Anyway, uh, couldn't find anything wrong, of course, and then uh, probably bad reflux or something. I don't know. But anyway, after a couple of hours, they let me out and said, you better go home. And I, well, fantastic. I felt really good. And what a treatment, I mean. Yeah. And, uh, and I had to, I went and promptly bought a box of chocolate and went back there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we love chocolate. Thank you. You should be giving them chocolate, sorry. <laughs> Gets you oh, through the thank night. You, thank you. One, we are very good at mm. like emergency medicine is the ultimate in risk management. So we are very good at listening to people's presenting symptoms and making sure that those people with scary yeah. symptoms get seen first. Um, so that's you know it's good to hear that in, in both these cases with chest pain they were seen very quickly. Yeah, yeah. How does triaging work? How do you work out? Oh, it's really complicated. And just acknowledging this, you know, this is done by really skilled nurses and I'm not as skilled as they are. How do you find out who's bunging it on? Well, I think you just assume that people aren't bunging it on. You've got to take people seriously. No, I don't mean that. I don't mean that harshly. Yeah, no, I know. Sometimes people think they're worse than they are. So triage is complicated. So triage is a little bit of storytelling and history taking. So Mm. you need to, you know, hear what someone's experiencing, their symptoms, but it's also their signs, which is the things they're demonstrating. So does someone look sweaty and distressed? And what are, their, what are their observations? So their blood pressure, their pulse, their temperature, their oxygen saturation levels, 
the, mm. the rate at which they're breathing. So there, there are some physiological markers that help determine who's really unwell or not, you know, heart, fast heart rate, low blood pressure, those sorts of things, but also right. the story they tell. Dr. Claire Skinner's with us, who's an ED specialist. And a big welcome to listeners in South Australia, by the way, who are joining the program live as well. We're talking with Claire Skinner, and if you'd like to give her a call, one three hundred eight hundred triple two. 800 Do children get triaged ahead of adults? No, and look, at it's they don't. The triage, so we, we worked to a thing called the Australasian Triage Scale, which was developed... Okay. In, obviously in Australia, it was world leading, which is, you know, the triage comes from the Napoleonic Wars, you know, which was basically, it really? it's military. It was basically, you leave the dead, you treat the people who need you immediately and the walking well can be later. So triage is an old military term. We actually have five levels in the Australasian triage scale. Mm. And they apply to, if you think about the breadth of conditions they apply to, it's so really hard. So category one, two, three, category four, five. Category one, two, three, four, five. Category one is the most urgent. So uh-huh. category one, we at- attempt to see immediately. That would be That's someone ambulance. unconscious, not breathing, you know, yeah. major road trauma, yeah. uh, cardiac arrest, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Category five, um, the KPI for that is much slower, but in fact, they, they can be people who come in seeking a replacement script or concerned because they, you know, there's a, it's, it's tricky and if you think about it, though, the triage scale has to encompass the full age spectrum of human beings, and it also mm. it goes across a range of physical and mental health conditions. So, say, a Category 2 physically might be someone with severe chest pain, but mentally it might be someone who is, is experiencing severe psychological distress and suicidal thoughts. Sure. So it's, it's a very complicated tool. I mean, that's a point, too, because they're, they're – I mean, EDs are – are tr- I mean, there can be traumatic places, can't they? Because there can be a lot of violent people. There can be a lot of people who are, you know, well, that's suffering a- mental episodes that make them not safe to be around. Look, right? there's. I think that's a tricky thing. So I just, um, the vast majority of people with mental health complaints behave beautifully in emergency departments sure. and... Um, there, I sort of would refer to it instead as behavioural disturbance, and mm. behavioural disturbance can be related to mental health conditions, but also to physical conditions and also to neurodevelopmental problems. There's a whole range of things that cause that. Mm. We know that we've got increasing violence, unfortunately, in emergency departments. And how bad's methamphetamine? Well, terrible. Ice is terrible. Like, and yeah. look, luckily, the place I work, that's not so bad. But I know in many states mm. in Australia, particularly WA and lots of rural and regional areas, it's a terrible problem that causes psychotic episodes and violence. Yeah. People aren't trying to do that. They're heavily addicted to a dangerous medication. Yeah. But EDs have become increasingly violent. And as we see the emergency departments get more and more crowded and waits get longer and people get more and more anxious about seeking care, we unfortunately have seen an escalation in violent incidents within emergency departments and emergency departments are workplaces, so there's a tension here between what's safe for patients but also ca- what's safe for clinicians. This seems to be the case with paramedics and elsewhere. The, the, you, this seems to be the thing, that the incidents of violent behaviour seem to be on the rise. Is it because of drugs, do you think? Oh, look, maybe a little bit of it's because of drugs. I think there's a genuine... Like, I think we've seen, you know, some intolerance towards waiting and uncertainty in our society. That's maybe just where we're up to at the moment. There's a lot of individualism as well. Point. That's an interesting point. Um, well, you mean people just aren't they aren't they aren't prepared to wait? I think. Well, look, the waits are horrible in some places. Just mm. acknowledging that, and you know, as you mentioned in the lead-in, emergency department waiting rooms are full of formica and fluorescent lights, and aren't somewhere you want to spend more than a couple of minutes. So, right. just acknowledging that. But I think people are very stressed. Uh, people are under pressure in their social and professional lives, and that bubbles over into emergency departments where you have lots of people. 
everyone's very anxious. People aren't feeling well in crowded, um, brightly lit, noisy environments and tempers flare. Mm. And we just need to work out how we deal with that. So part of that, that, that's not just as simple as telling people to behave. I would tend to be very sympathetic to that. I can put myself in someone's shoes and say, well, I would be frustrated and angry in this situation as well if I were here with my child waiting this long. But what we need to do is make sure we create systems that are more humanistic so people are waiting in better environments and also we make sure we have ways of quickly referring people onto the care they need so they're mm. not just stuck waiting in the emergency department waiting room or corridor. one three hundred eight hundred triple two is the number. Kieran from Ferry Meadow. G'day, Kieran. Oh, g'day, Phil. How are you? Uh, Dr. Claire, is it? Yeah? Yes, Dr. Claire Hi. Skinner. Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah, what a lovely topic. Um, I just spent... Um, Last month, I had two trips to ED at mm. Wollongong Hospital, and I've oh, just got to say, what fantastic people they are, and the paramedics, unbelievable. You know, like, I, I just had a, from emphysema and all the heat and the smoke, mm. I, I couldn't breathe, and yeah, I don't want to go into it too much, but bang, they got me up there and kept me there for four days and looked after me, and the nurses were unbelievable, the doctors fantastic you know like they just went yeah well mate, you know you've you've i had i didn't even realize i had pneumonia mm. you know but they looked after me fantastic you know and then next time me me um a few weeks later um i checked it out and i was feeling all dizzy and whizzy and it was me sh- uh blood sugar level was down and bang straight back up Looked after me again, you know. Went Good home, did Good all my own thing, you know. Like, um, but yeah, um, the nurses, the, the the paramedics, the doctors, just do a wonderful, wonderful job. There you go. Thanks, thanks, Thank you so much for saying so. We do have a really good public hospital system here and lots of people very committed to working in it and providing good care and we really need to make sure we look after that. At the same time, Claire, it's in crisis in lots of ways in terms of funding and, and personnel, isn't it? And part of the problem I'm constantly being told by by those in the medical system is that is that, you know, Getting to getting to a GP and finding a GP is not what it was, and increasingly, of course, all that means is that all of those people who might have seen GPs go to the ED instead, and this is what's causing a whole lot of you know bottlenecks in the hospitals. Yeah, look, I have deep respect for my colleagues working in general practice. I think it's a very of difficult course. job, yeah. and um, I think there are a lot of reasons why generalist work and, I, you know, obviously general practice and emergency medicine, both generalist specialties where we do a bit of everything, it's got mm. very difficult. We have a very risk-averse society. Um, people are very much wanting specific diagnoses. There are long waits. It's very complicated working in these systems. And I think we need really need to preserve this. We can't, you know, we need to make sure... Like, we know that the health system works best when people have a good longitudinal relationship with a general practitioner yeah, yeah. and it is not a substitute for coming into ED. We've got to get back to this somehow, don't we? Yeah, we do. And look, I think we really we refer to that as primary care, you know, the, yeah. the care you access in the community from general practitioners and a range of other community-based health professionals. But look, it's there's a bit of a myth that EDs are clogged up because of people with um, sprained ankles and sore throats. Mm. But in fact... The relationship between general practice and emergency medicine is much more complicated than that, mm-hmm. and I really. You're saying wa- that's not the case that people look. Look, if someone comes into the emergency department with a sore throat, yes, they might have been able to go to their GP, but often they couldn't get an appointment or they couldn't sometimes can't afford it. 
Um, and it takes me 10 minutes to sort that out. So yeah. yes, it's, it, they might sit there and wait for a long time, but it's quick and easy for me to sort out, even yeah. though I'm not quite the right environment. Yeah. The thing I find more heartbreaking is say someone with diabetes, high blood pressure, um, you know, chronic cardiac disease who can't get in to see a GP loses that contact with regular care in the community and then they deteriorate to the point where when they come to the emergency department they're in extremists and they need hospital admission mm. and they and they then have complexities with their health for the rest of their life. So I think we really need to boost our primary health care in Australia. Mm. And that yeah, will that take pressure off EDs? Not immediately, but what it is the right it's the right thing to do in terms of good care for people and preventing chronic health issues. Yeah, we've got to stop people turning up at hospital because that's their primary point of care. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. It should it's, be a GP. Well, we're not. I'm just not trained to provide that sort of longitudinal care. So I'm really good with your acute things. So a broken bone or a stroke or a heart attack, I'm your person. Sure. But if you come in for a replacement for your script for something or monitoring your blood pressure, that's just not my scope. Hmm. And I can try, but the best thing by far, and we know this from the research, we know it's the most cost-effective, we know it's the most effective in terms of high-quality care is for people to have a, a good relationship with a GP. Exactly, which is very difficult in lots of parts of Australia. Ron from Yarrawonga. Hi, Ron. Oh, good evening. Um, I was shocked when I came to live out in the country. You had to wait two weeks to see a doctor. Yeah. And when I was at the ED a little while back, I was thinking a lot of the nurses have got so much experience, they, they know... Uh, I was wondering how much more upskilling it would take for them to, um, you know, take a bit of pressure off the doctors. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I can't comment on how that works in general practice. And look, I, you know, doctors and nurses train quite differently. We have different training. Um, but something I really like about emergency medicine is that doctors and nurses do work quite closely together. And, you know, the nurses, nurses I work with in emergency departments do have quite advanced skills in, you know, they do things like suturing or putting in stitches, ordering x-rays. Um, they have a more limited scope of practice than a doctor because they've done different training. But I, I do think some flexibility is good. We just need to make sure we're using everyone effectively. And we need to make sure that everyone has access to a satisfying career. We don't want one group to end up with all the hard bits. Um, so mm. I think balance is good. And I really like in my corner of healthcare that we work very closely together and uh, recognise and respect each other's skills. This is a thing I think commonly misunderstood, isn't it? I'm glad you said it. Nurses and doctors have different training. That It's not as though one can be the other. I mean, I know nurses... And, and we don't want to be each no, other. No, no. Nurses can take temperatures and blood pressure. I know I realise that. But... Nurses, can, nurses do extraordinary things. Yeah. Emergency nurses are some of the most amazing people I know. I do not have the same skill set as mm. them. Mm. Yeah, emergency departments. What other common myths about emergency departments that they're clogged up with uh, with minor things? You say that's not not so much the case. What are other myths about? Emergency yeah, departments? Um, I think so. The, the 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 GP style patient. I really hate that. I think mm. it blames the patient for what's mm. going on, and people don't choose to come to emergency departments lightly. They come because they they're worried or they mm. can't access care anywhere else. Mm. So we need to design better systems and not stop blaming people for that. I think the Do you other think people should stop calling ambulances all the time. I don't see like again, I'm not a paramedic, but I don't see too much evidence of people doing that. Because that's lightly. A, that's an observation, isn't it? That you know, if you want if you want to get seen, if you're worried, call an ambulance. So just to reassure everybody, if you whether you arrive by ambulance or whether you walk in or you're dropped off um, through the front door, the triage scale does not differentiate between oh, an ambulance right? drop off is that right and uh, ambulatory presentation. 
Oh, well, that's it. I'm glad we cleared that up. So I'm sure a is, lot of people don't think that's right. I'm sure no, a lot of people think so they're reversed. They think that's, um, if you arrive in the ambulance, you'll get treated. Look, there's a little bit of pressure to offload ambulances appropriately because there's a KPI around that. Yeah. And that's right because we want paramedics out in the community helping people, helping mm. new people. But no, if you, ca- if you caught an ambulance and you, say, received a Category 4 or 5 and you were deemed suitable to sit in the waiting room, you would be offloaded the ambulance stretcher into the waiting room. <laughs> doesn't feel quite right, does it? No, it doesn't feel quite right, but there you are. Uh, I can't praise the hospitals enough, says Wazza. Um, went an ambulance under the lights as a trauma patient after I fell out of the tree. Oh, that's right, Was did. He fell out of the tree with a chainsaw. They were, they were wonderful. Um, that sounds dramatic. Uh, yes. Uh, Nigel from Layla says, Phil, I just wanted to shout out to the non-medical staff that work in ED too. Without the PSA's Clark's security and all the rest, then the place couldn't function. I completely agree. And um, Is it a dangerous place I'm to so work priv- sometimes? Sir? Yeah, I'm so privileged as a doctor because I get to do all the talking about it, but I couldn't yeah. do my job without the amazing ward clerks, the orderlies, the security guards. It's a big team effort. Yeah. Yeah. Peter from Redlands. G'day, Peter. G'day. Hello. Phil and Dr. Claire, is it? Yes, it is. Hi. Oh, yeah, good evening. Um, okay, long story short, I jumped the queue a couple of years ago, sitting in a restaurant, feeling lightheaded. Um, 17 minutes later, I, I came around, I, I endured 17 minutes of CPR. Yeah. Um, sitting, sitting almost right next to me was a husband and wife team. This is up in Darwin. Um, she was the head nurse of the emergency department. <laughs> 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 I went, he was the head training nurse at the emergency department and running around outside playing with a child was another emergency department nurse. But, uh, Someone was yeah, looking down was, on you, Ron, on you Peter. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, as I say, a lot I went. Um, it ended up being um, Dr. Claire Brigada syndrome. You, you know that one? Yeah, I sure do. Yeah, um, that's I'm not. I'm glad they. I'm glad they caught it. That can be hard to catch. So that was a great pick at, by the team there. At, after all, Doctor Chu at um, in the hospital uh, you know, diagnosed me, but uh, yeah, 17 minutes we had the CPR before they could find a, a defib, um, and then off we went. And out of interest, the uh, paramedic who drove me to the hospital. Uh, Sue Ellen Skinner. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Well, I'll have to... There you go. Pete, we out. might just leave it at that point because the phone line's a little bit dodgy there, Peter, but thank you for the call. So, I have heard that maybe we're the best specialty to have on a plane. Are you one of those... <laughs> I was, no doctor will confess to saying to thinking this, but that, is there a doctor on the plane? You think... Please, please let there be somebody else on the plane as a doctor because I don't want to put my hand up. Oh, the classic situation that gets discussed in medical women's circles is yeah. that someone stands up who might be a retired dermatologist, but because they're male, the flight attendant takes them seriously. And the <laughs> unfortunately, the female you know, person with some resuscitation skills might have to struggle to prove their credentials. <laughs> That's probably right. But is that, are they generally gender? What's gender like in the EDs? Are they... Oh, look, tricky thing. Like I think, uh, um, you know, at the, the moment, old day, the old days of the of the the bloke being. Look, when know, I when I was when I first started training, there were the very well. I could see very few women when I started training twenty yeah. years ago, and now yeah. like now the specialty is forty percent female. Yeah. Um, and I think people don't even recognise that emergency medicine is a specialty, but the specialty is forty percent female, yeah, yeah, yeah. and over half of our trainees are female. So, I think we're making strides into that, and definitely we're working very hard to make everybody feel included because we know that diversity of input leads to better decisions and that uh, medical staff who match the communities they serve 
um, provide better care. So we're, mm. we're really working hard on diversity, inclusion and gender equity in emergency medicine. And thank you to many of my colleagues who've really led this, the way on that. Yeah, I know. I know. There's a, there's a trend. Well, in other words, a trend, but there's a thing that often uh, that people can be trained in two specialties, can't they? They can be. Oh, lots of people you know, are. You know, they can be. Uh, they can be um, uh, anaesthetists, for example, and also EDs. Oh no, that's it's sort it's sort of rare. Like I could sort of think it's much more common that you'd have a subspecialty or a special interest area within mm. a specialty. Um, mm. So, for example, a lot of emergency physicians might do um, something like toxicology, which is poisons, you know, overdoses and poisonings okay. on the side. That's a common sub... It's not a formal subspecialty, but something people do. Or there are emergency physicians with a special interest in paediatrics who work in the paediatric emergency departments, like um, Westmead, you know, Melbourne. Um, and there are lots of people who are taking on special interest. That's actually an interesting thing with our careers because I, I'm really proud that I'm a generalist. I like that I feel, you know, I feel competent across the full age spectrum and every type of problem. But increasingly, and probably as a way to mitigate burnout, people choose to pick a special interest area because it's a little bit easier to be an expert in a corner of something instead of trying to maintain the whole lot. Let's go a few, three, few, three, a few things. As I say, I don't want to get too gruesome here. Snake, snake bite, had done that? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. The, uh, redback, redback spider? Uh, yep, done that. Funnel web? Yep. Really? Yep. <laughs> I, well, it was a story about my hospital and a funnel web bite in the Sydney Morning Herald only this weekend. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Very good. <laughs> um, I, think, I think that's the thing is you don't, if you stop over 20 years and think, have I seen that? Yes, you have. And isn't yeah. that interesting? The other thing is, I suppose, I mean, there's a lot of those American, American medical shows, the injury, I mean, thank heavens in Australia, you don't see gunshot wounds. Not much. Yeah, isn't that? Not much. We don't much, and like no. when I've seen them, they've tended, and I, obviously I, I can't go near any real patient details, but when I've seen no. them, they've tended to be much more in the context of farming accidents. Of accidental things, yeah. Yeah, that's not, right. um, not, not routine. deliberate. No, not routine. I've seen, I've seen a couple of deliberate gunshot wounds, and they were um, mm. deceased by the time I saw them. So if mm. you think about um, trauma in America is knives, knives and guns, and trauma in Australia, unfortunately, is mostly road trauma. Mm. and falls. So it's quite a different profile of what we see here. But mm. I would rather have it our way around, just like everyone to get a little bit safer on the oh, roads and in the water sake, this yes. year. No, but for heaven's sake, agreed, you know, if that's right, exactly. It's a reflection of our society and, 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 and you know, and so it should be. What, what can be done to improve them, do you think? Uh, I, I mean, it's, well, I say two questions. Is demand getting more and more? So I think, well, the interesting thing here is like, uh, you know, if you think about emergency departments, you in, you inevitably will think of road trauma as a major part of our work. Mm. And it is. And look, it's been a t- horrible year on the Australian roads this, this summer season. That's true. Although generally road trauma is in decline. Isn't yeah. It? And a, lo- a lot of people who work in trauma will get very interested in prevention. Um, yeah. They're not trying to actually build their business. They're trying to stop their own business. Um, yeah. But if you think about emergency departments... Actually, the reason we're busy now, it's, it's much more around aged care and mental health and, and um, unfortunately, disability and alcohol, like, you know, drug and alcohol issues. So the profile of what comes into emergency departments has really changed. Mm. If I think about a night shift, you know, 20 years ago, middle of the night, you might see a couple of tradies having a car accident, someone who had a heart attack or a stroke. Unfortunately, now it's busy all night and there's a lot of people who are elderly. They've had falls. They're confused. Um, people experiencing psychological distress. We've seen mental health presentations to emergency departments go right up. And to me, I'm I'm really glad we're there to provide a service. We're not quite doing it well enough because it's not what we're designed to do. 
But I think we need, there's probably more humanistic ways to provide those services and we can think down the track of how we actually have a conversation sure. about doing that better and providing that care in the community. Things don't always go well. Dan from Innisfail. Yes, Dan, what happened to you? Uh, good evening. Thank you for the forum to both of you. Yeah, I mean, if I can just say that um, despite the altruistic uh, intent and that every system can fail and, uh, you know, uh, it's just human nature and uh, that was my experience years ago and it was probably, it would be too long a story to relate. Try and but, uh, just be brief about it. What happened? Um, well, I was just working offshore island, Bass Strait and uh, labouring and getting increasingly weaker and one morning I couldn't pick up the hammer and flew over to mainland Tasmania seeking treatment, you know, mm. and uh, I found it extremely hard to get. I was pretty dishevelled by the time I got there and uh, very, very weak. And I think I probably looked a bit like a hobo off the street, you know. Mm. It took me um, it took me a very long time to be accepted for treatment. I had multiple pre uh, presentations and um, I mean, indeed, the last time I was rejected after a 12-hour wait out the back, um, I finally got a bed uh, early the next morning, and uh, and then I was ejected out the front. And uh, an ambulance will take you to hospital, but it will not take you home. And so, you know, it was uh, really by then I was pretty low, and um, so I basically went back to my sister's place to die. I'd resigned uh, to that fact you know and uh, and fortunately i had a really good friend uncharacteristically just check up on me and he dragged me back to the gp and said this guy's dying you know what's happening and they sent me back to the hospital and eventually i was accepted you know? sure. um, got patched up yeah i'm so glad you had a friend for advocate for you and mm. I'm, i do know that things go wrong and look unfortunately the quick judgment and quick thinking skills that help people make big decisions in the moment can sometimes fail us. And just to reassure you, and I know it's not enough, but we have put a lot of effort into teaching people about bias and judgment and that things aren't as they seem. So I hope things are getting better. But obviously when systems are under pressure and unfortunately clinicians are human and get tired and overworked as well, I know that things do go wrong. But I promise you that we take this really seriously and we're really trying to train people, particularly about those issues of bias that you've raised. Yep, indeed. Thank you, um, Dan. Uh, Amanda from Newcastle says, I'm perfectly happy to see female doctors. It's just slightly unnerving to be old enough now to think that most of them seem about 14 years old. <laughs> I hope so. Or maybe not. Maybe I can be about 25. Not in Well, life. you know, Amanda, that's just a, that's a function of other things. I think, should... I think I'm actually happy to be my genuine age. <laughs> Dennis from Tweed Heads. Yes, Dennis? Mate, I call the emergency doctors Tina Turner's. Yeah. Simply the best. My experience, my experience with my wife, she's been sick for 25 years. Mm. Several cases where we had to go to emergency. And I, I myself have been five times in the last six months with different things. And the way you, you treat it, they, they, they're, they're the next best thing to the specialists. They, they really are. And whilst I was in waiting, this fellow walked in, a T-shirt, tattoos, long hair and everything. And I thought, oh, my God. Well, I was assigned to him. Now, after he went and got changed into his uniform, into his outfit, and whatever, hmm. and mate, the care that he produced, I went and talking to some of the other uh, people within there, they just said, mate, he just works so hard, loves his job. When he gets out, he gets on his motorbike and frees and does whatever. But I'm so proud of our doctors and nurses and 
Doc, you should go into politics, darling, and be of health minister. <laughs> oh, I don't think so, but really, anyway. Come really. on, Dennis. Dr. Claire Skinner is a very, very nice person. <laughs> no, what, are you wishing, what are you wishing upon her? I think that would be even more stressful than uh, ED. I understand, but, you know, the way you're expressing yourself and, and the feeling I get that, you know, you absolutely love your job. And, and the fact is it's not a job. It's, it's, it's something where you do love, help and care. Yeah, yeah, I love him. I love my job. Everybody. On your, on your, Dennis. Thank, thank you. You. <laughs> uh, you do love your job. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, look, it's been a tremendous pleasure to have you in, and look how time has vanished on us um, when you're having fun. Dr. Claire Skinner is an immediate past president of the Australian College of Emergency Medicine. She is a busy ED specialist herself. She's got more than twenty years of experience in the field, and it's been a tremendous pleasure having you in the studio. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks to those who called. And I'm sorry we couldn't get to uh, everybody. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.